Hello out there. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is White Ash Flies with Colin Mahoney. And I hope you brought your snow boots, because tonight we're going to take you right into the heart of the Russian winter with a short story by Anton Chekhov on official business. Published in 1899 and translated 15 or so years later by the great Constance Garnett, who introduced the English-speaking world to so many great Russian writers. Chekhov's story opens with a physician and an examining magistrate traveling in bad winter weather to a provincial village headquarters on official business of the bleakest sort. As the snow deepens, so does the villagers' horror at what transpired there, and their dread as they wait for its resolution. You can find this and previous episodes of White Ashflies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Anchor FM. And you can follow us on Twitter at ColinMahoney15. And now, on official business, on White Ashflies. The deputy examining magistrate and the county physician were on their way to an autopsy in the village of Sirnia. En route, they were caught in a blizzard. They wasted a great deal of time traveling in circles and arrived at their destination not at midday, as they had intended, but in the evening when it was already dark. They put up for the night at the village headquarters. It was here that the dead body happened to be lying the corpse of the Zemtsvo insurance agent, Lesnitsky, who had come to Cernia three days previously, and after settling in the village headquarters and ordering the samovar, had shot himself, to the complete surprise of everyone. And the fact that he had ended his life under such strange circumstances, with the samovar before him and the food he had brought along laid out on the table, led many to suspect murder. An inquest was in order. In the entry, the doctor and the examining magistrate stamped their feet to shake off the snow, and nearby stood an old man who belonged to the lowest order of rural police, Ilya Loshedin. He was holding a little tin lamp in his hands to give them light. There was a strong smell of kerosene. Who are you? asked the doctor. The policeman, answered Loshedin. He used to spell it policeman when he signed the receipts at the post office. And where are the inquest witnesses? They must have gone to tea, your honor. To the right was the best room, the travelers or gentry's room. To the left, a room for the lower orders, with a big stove and a sleeping platform. The doctor and the examining magistrate, followed by the policeman holding the lamp high above his head, went into the best room. Here, motionless on the floor, close to the table legs, lay a long body, covered with a white sheet. In the dim light of the lamp, in addition to the white cover, a pair of new rubbers could be clearly seen and everything about the place was weird and sinister, 
the dark walls and the silence and the rubbers and the immobility of the dead body. On the table stood a samovar, long since cold, and round it packages, probably containing food. To shoot oneself in the village headquarters, how tactless, said the doctor. If you do want to put a bullet through your brain, you ought to do it at home, in some shed. He sank onto a bench, just as he was, in his cap, his fur coat, and his felt boots. His companion, the magistrate, sat down opposite him. These hysterical and neurasthenic people are great egoists, the doctor went on bitterly. If a neurasthenic sleeps in the same room with you, he rustles his newspaper. When he dines with you, he has a row with his wife, unrestrained by your presence. And when he feels like shooting himself, he shoots himself in the village headquarters, so as to give everybody the greatest amount of trouble. Under all circumstances, these gentlemen only think of themselves. That's why elderly people so dislike our nervous age. Oh, elderly people dislike so many things, said the magistrate, yawning. You ought to point out to the old fellows the difference between the suicides of the past and the suicides of the present. Formerly, the so-called gentleman shot himself because he had embezzled government funds. But nowadays, it's because he's fed up with life. Depressed. Which is better? Fed up with life. Depressed. But you must admit he might have shot himself somewhere else than at the village headquarters. Such aggravation, said the policeman. Such aggravation. It's a regular punishment. Folks are all upset, Your Honor. They've not slept these three nights. The children are crying. The cows ought to be milked, but the women won't go to the barn. They're scared. That they may see the dead gentlemen in the dark. Sure, they're foolish women, but some of the men is scared, too. As soon as it's dark, they won't pass the place alone, but only in a drove. And the witnesses, too. Dr. Starchenko, a middle-aged, dark-bearded man in spectacles, and the magistrate Lejeune, a fair-haired man still young, who had taken his degree only two years before and looked more like a student than an official, sat in silence, musing. They were annoyed at having been delayed. Now, although it was not yet six o'clock, they had to wait till morning, spending the night here, and they pictured a long evening, a long, dark night, boredom, wretched beds, cockroaches, morning chill. And listening to the storm that howled in the chimney and in the garret, they both thought how unlike all this was the life they would have wished for themselves, and of which they had once dreamed, and how far away they both were from their contemporaries, who at that moment were walking about the lighted streets in town without noticing the weather, or getting ready for the theater, or sitting in their studies over a book. Oh, how much they would have given now only to stroll along the Nevsky or along Petrovka in Moscow, to listen to decent singing, 
to spend an hour or so in a restaurant. Sang the storm in the garret, and something outside banged viciously, probably the signboard on the cottage. You can do as you like, but I don't want to stay here, said Starchenko, getting up. It's not six yet. It's too early to go to bed. I'll drive somewhere. Von Taunitz lives not far from here, only a couple of miles from Cernia. I'll drive there and spend the evening with him. Officer, go and tell my coachman not to take the horses out. And what will you do? he asked Lejeune. I don't know. I'll probably go to sleep. The doctor wrapped his fur coat round him and went out. He could be heard talking to the coachman, and there was the sound of bells shaking on the frozen horses. He drove off. It's not right for you, sir, to spend the night in here, said the policeman. Go into the other room. It's not clean there, but for one night it don't matter. I'll get a samovar from a peasant and heat it directly. I'll pile up some hay for you, and then you can go to sleep. And God be with you, your honor. A little later, the magistrate was sitting at a table in the other room, drinking tea, while Loshedin, the policeman, stood at the door, talking. He was an old man of about sixty, short and very lean, hunched and white-haired, with a naive smile on his face and watery eyes, and he kept smacking his lips as though he were sucking a candy. He was wearing a short, cheapskin coat and felt boots, and did not let his stick out of his hands. The magistrate's youth aroused his compassion, and that was probably why he addressed him familiarly. Fyodor Makarich, the elder, gave orders that he was to be informed when the police inspector or the examining magistrate came, he said. So I reckon I must go now. It's nearly three miles to the district office, and the storm's bad. The snowdrifts are a caution. Blamed if I'll get there before midnight. Listen to it howl. I don't need the elder, said Lejeune. There's nothing for him to do here. He looked at the old man with curiosity and asked, Tell me, grandfather, how many years is it you've been a policeman? Why, about thirty. Five years after the freedom I got to be a policeman, you can figure out for yourself. And I've been on the go every day since. People have holidays, but me, I'm always on the go. When it's Easter and the church bells are ringing and Christ is risen, I keep on trotting with my bag. To the treasury, to the post office, to the police inspector's lodgings, to the district magistrate, to the tax collector, to the municipal office, to the gentry, to the peasants, to all orthodox folk. I carry packages, notices, tax blanks, letters, all kinds of forms, reports, and you know, kind sir, your honor, They've got such forms nowadays to write numbers on, yellow, white, red. 
and every gentleman or priest or well-to-do peasant must write down a dozen times a year how much he has sown or harvested, how many bushels or poods he has of rye, how many of oats and of hay, and all about the weather, you know, and insects, too, of all kinds. Of course, you can write what you like. It's only a rule. But you must go and hand out the papers and then go and collect them again. Here, for instance, there's no call to cut open the gentleman. You know yourself it's all foolishness. You only dirty your hands. But here you've gone to the trouble, Your Honor. You've come because it's the rule. There's no getting round it. For thirty years I've been walking my legs off according to rule. In summer it's all right. It is warm and dry. But in winter and fall it puts you out. There were times I was drowning and times I was near froze to death. All kinds of things happened to me. Wicked people in the woods took my bag away. I've got it in the neck and I've been brought to law. What for? Fraud. What do you mean, fraud? Why, you see, Chrysanth Grigoriev, the clerk, sold the contractor some boards as didn't belong to him. Cheated him, that is. I was mixed up in it. They sent me to the tavern for vodka. Well, the clerk didn't go shares with me. Didn't even stand me a drink. But seeing as I'm a poor man, and so a no-account person, not to be relied on, to look at, that is, we were both brought to trial. He was sent to prison, but, praise God, I was acquitted on all counts. They read a paper, you know, in the court about it. And they were all in uniform. In the court, I mean. I can tell you, Your Honor, for anyone not used to him, my duties are a caution. Lord, keep you from them. But me, I don't mind it. Matter of fact, when I'm not on the go, my feet hurt. And at home it's worse for me. At home you have to light the stove for the clerk in the district office, to fetch water for him, to clean his boots. And what's your salary? Lejeune asked. Eighty-four roubles a year. I'll bet there are other little sums coming in. There are, aren't there? Other little sums? No, indeed. Gentlemen nowadays don't often give tips. Gentlemen is strict nowadays. They take offense easy. If you bring him a paper, he's offended. If you take off your cap to him, he's offended. You use the wrong entrance, he says. You're a drunkard, he says. You smell of onion. You're a blockhead, he says. You're the son of a bitch. There are some as is decent, of course. But what does it get you? They only laugh at you and call you names. Take Squire Altuheen, for instance. He's good-natured, and to look at him, he's sober and in his right mind. But as soon as he lays eyes on me, he shouts God knows what. The name he calls me. You administrator, says he. The policeman pronounced some word, but in such a low voice that it was impossible to make out what he said. What? asked Lejeune. Say it again. Administration, the policeman repeated aloud. He's been calling me that for a long time, for maybe six years. 
Hello, administration. But I don't mind. Let him. God bless him. A lady will send you a glass of vodka and a piece of pie sometimes, and you drink her health. But it's mostly the peasants that give me something. Peasants are more warm-hearted. They fear God. One will give you a piece of bread, another some cabbage soup, and there's some as stand you a glass. The village elders treat you to tea in the tavern. Here the inquest witnesses have gone to drink tea. Lo Shadin, they says, you stay here and keep watch for us, and each of them gives me a kopeck. They're scared, not being used to it, and yesterday they gave me fifteen kopecks and stood me a glass. And you? Aren't you scared? I am, sir. But, of course, it's all in the line of duty. There's no getting round it. Last year I was taking an arrested man into town, and he laced into me and took it out of my hide. And all around us, fields, woods, how could I get away from him? And that's how it is here. I remember the gentleman, this Lesnitsky, when he was that high, and I knew his father and his mamma. I'm from the village of Nidoshkotova, and the Lesnitskys, they weren't more than two-thirds of a mile from us, and even less. Their land bordered on ours. And the old master, Lesnitsky, he had a sister, a God-fearing charitable maiden lady. God rest the soul of thy servant, Yulia, of sainted memory. She never married, and when she was dying, she divided up all her property. She left 250 acres to the monastery and 500 to our village commune for her soul's sake. But her brother, I mean the master, he hid the paper. They say he burnt it in the stove and took all this land for himself. To be sure, he thought it would be to his benefit. But no, wait. You can't get on in the world by wrongdoing, brother. For twenty years the master didn't go to confession. There was something as kept him from church, you see, and he died without the sacrament. He busted. He was as fat as they come. He busted lengthwise. Then everything was taken from Seriosha, the young master, I mean, to pay the debts. Every last thing. Well... He hadn't gotten very far with his book learning. He couldn't do anything. And the president of the Zemtsvo board, his uncle, he says to himself, I'll take him, Tseriosha, I mean, to be our agent. Let him insure people. That's easy work. And the gentleman was young and proud. He wanted to live in better style, on a grander scale, and have things his way. To be sure, it hurt his feelings to be jolting about the county in a trashy cart and talking to the peasants. He would walk and keep looking on the ground, looking on the ground and saying nothing. If you called him right in his ear, Sergei Sergeyevich, he would look round like this, eh? and stare at the ground again. And now you see he's laid hands on himself. It don't fit, Your Honor. It's wrong, this thing, and there's no understanding what goes on in the world, merciful Lord. Say your father was rich and you're poor. It's eating humble pie, no denying it, but there, 
got to put up with it. I used to live well too, Your Honor. I had two horses, three cows. I used to keep twenty head of sheep. But that time's past, and here I am with nothing but a bag. And even that's not mine. It's the government's. And now in our village, if the truth be told, my house is the worst of the lot. Moki had four footmen to scrape and bow. Moki is a footman himself now. Petrak had four workmen to dig and delve. And now Petrak is a workman himself. And how was it you came down in the world? asked the magistrate. My sons are terrible boozers. They get so soused. So soused there's no saying what it's like. You wouldn't believe me. Lejeune listened and thought how he, Lejeune, would go back to Moscow sooner or later, while this old man would stay here forever and would always be on the go. And how many times in his life he would come across such battered, unkempt, no-account old men, whose souls cherished equally the fifteen-kopeck piece, the glass of vodka, in the profound belief that you can't get along in this world by wrongdoing. Then he grew tired of listening, and told the old man to bring him some hay for his bed. In the traveler's room there was an iron bedstead with a pillow and a quilt, and it could have been brought in. But the deceased had been lying beside it for nearly three days, and he may have been sitting on it just before his death and now it would be disagreeable to sleep on it. It's only half past seven, thought Lejeune, glancing at his watch. How awful. He was not sleepy, but having no means of passing the time, he lay down and covered himself with a plaid. Loshadine went in and out several times, clearing away the dishes, Smacking his lips and sighing, he kept stomping about the table. At last he took his little lamp and went out, and looking at his long gray hair and bent body from behind, Lejeune reflected, just like a magician in an opera. It grew dark. The moon must have been behind the clouds, as the windows and the snow on the window frames could be seen distinctly. sang the storm. Help! shrieked a woman in the garret, or so it sounded. Help! Thump! Something outside banged against the wall. Bang! The magistrate listened. There was no woman up there. It was the wind wailing. It was chilly, and he put his fur coat over his plaid. As he got warm, he thought how all this, the blizzard in the cottage, and the old man, and the dead body lying in the next room, how all this was remote from the life he desired for himself, 
and how alien it all was to him. How petty, uninteresting. If this man had killed himself in Moscow or somewhere near the city, and he had had to hold an inquest on him there, it would have been interesting, important, and perhaps it would have seemed terrible to sleep in the room next to that in which the corpse lay. Here, hundreds of miles from Moscow, all this appeared somehow in a different light. It was not life, not human beings, but something that existed according to rule, as Loshadin said. It would not leave the faintest trace in the memory, and would be forgotten as soon as he, Lejeune, drove away from Cernia. The fatherland, the real Russia, was Moscow, Petersburg. But these were the provinces, the colonies. When you dream of playing a part, of becoming known, of being, for instance, examining magistrate in important cases, or prosecutor in a circuit court, of being a social lion, you inevitably think of Moscow. If you are to live, then it must be in Moscow. Here, nothing matters to you. You get reconciled readily to your insignificant role, and only look for one thing in life, to get away, to get away as quickly as possible. And in his mind, Lejeune hurried through the Moscow streets, called on acquaintances, met relatives, colleagues, and his heart contracted sweetly at the thought that he was only twenty-six, and that if in five or ten years he could break away from here and get to Moscow, even then it would not be too late, and he would still have a whole life ahead of him. And as he began to doze off, and as his thoughts became confused. He imagined the long corridors of the Moscow court, himself delivering a speech, his sisters, the orchestra which for some reason kept droning. Thump! sounded again. Thump! And he suddenly recalled how one day, when he was talking to the bookkeeper at the Zemsvo office, a thin, pale gentleman with dark eyes and black hair came up to the counter. He had a disagreeable look in his eyes, such as one sees in people who have slept too long after dinner, and it marred his delicate, intelligent profile. And the high boots that he was wearing did not suit him. They looked clumsy. The bookkeeper had introduced him. This is our Zemsvo agent. So that was Lesnitsky, this very man, it now occurred to Lejeune. He recalled Lesnitsky's low voice, called to mind his gait, and it seemed to him that someone was walking beside him now with a step like Lesnitsky's. All at once he was terrified. His head felt cold. Who's there? 
he asked fearfully. The policeman. What do you want here? I've come to ask, Your Honor. You said this evening as the elder wasn't needed, but I'm afraid he'll be angry. He told me to let him know. Shouldn't I go? The deuce! I'm fed up with you, said Lejeune with vexation, and covered himself up again. Maybe he'll be angry. I'll go, Your Honor. I hope you'll be all right here. Then Lochadine went out. There was coughing and whispering in the entry. The inquest witnesses must have returned. We'll let these poor devils get off as early as possible tomorrow, thought the examining magistrate. We'll do the autopsy as soon as it's light. He began to doze off, when suddenly he again became conscious of steps, not timid this time, but quick and noisy. A door slammed. Voices were heard. The scratching of a match. Are you asleep? Are you asleep? Dr. Starchenko asked hurriedly and crossly, as he lit one match after another. He was covered with snow from head to foot, and he had brought cold air in with him. Are you asleep? Get up. Let's go to Von Taunitz. He sent his horses to fetch you. Let's go. There you will have supper, at least, and sleep decently. You see, I've come for you myself. The horses are excellent. We'll get there in twenty minutes. What time is it now? Quarter past ten. Lejeune, sleepy and out of sorts, put on his felt boots, his fur coat, cap, and hood, and went out with the doctor. The frost had abated, but a strong piercing wind was blowing and chasing down the street clouds of snow that seemed to flee in terror. High drifts had already piled up against fences and on doorsteps. The doctor and the magistrate got into the sleigh, and the white coachman bent over them to button up the apron. They were both hot. Go ahead! They drove through the village, Cutting a fluffy furrow there, the magistrate quoted the poet to himself, as he listlessly watched the working of the outrunner's legs. There were lights in all the cabins, as though it were the eve of a high holiday. The peasants had stayed up because they were afraid of the dead man. The coachman sullenly held his peace. He must have turned glum while he was waiting at the village headquarters and now he too was thinking of the deceased. When they found out at von Taunitz, said Starchenko, that you were spending the night in the village, they all attacked me for not having brought you along with me. At the turning, as they left the village behind them, the coachman suddenly shouted at the top of his voice, Get off the road! A man flashed by, he was standing in the snow up to his knees, having moved off the road, and was staring at the troika. The magistrate caught sight of a hooked staff, a beard, and a bag slung sideways, and it seemed to him that it was Lochadine, and he even fancied that the man was smiling. He flashed by and vanished. The road at first skirted the forest, 
then broadening, cut through it. Old pines into young birch grove shot past, as well as tall, gnarled young oaks standing singly in the clearings where the wood had recently been cut. But soon everything was lost in clouds of snow. The coachman said that he could see the forest, but the magistrate could see nothing but the outrunner. The wind blew at their backs. Suddenly the horses stopped. Well, what now? asked Starchenko crossly. Without a word, the coachman climbed down from the box and began to run around the sleigh on his heels. He made larger and larger circles, getting further and further away from the sleigh, and it looked as though he were dancing. Finally he returned and began turning off to the right. "'You've lost your way, eh?' asked Darchenko. "'No matter!' They came to a hamlet with not a light in it. Then, again, forest and fields. And again they lost their way, and the coachman climbed down from the box and performed his dance. The troika flew along a dark road under overarching trees, flew swiftly, and the hooves of the fiery outrunner knocked against the dashboard. Here the trees roared fearfully and resonantly, and it was pitch dark, so that those in the sleigh felt as though they were rushing into an abyss. Suddenly bright light from an entrance and windows flashed upon their eyes, and they heard the friendly, steady barking of dogs and the sound of voices. They had arrived. While they were taking off their fur coats and felt boots downstairs in the entry, Un Petit Verde Clicquot was being played on the piano upstairs, and the stamping of children's feet was heard. Immediately they were enveloped in the genial warmth and the smell peculiar to an old mansion where, whatever the weather, it is warm and clean and comfortable. "'That's splendid,' said von Taunitz, a fat man with an incredibly broad neck and side whiskers, pressing the magistrate's hand. "'That's splendid. Glad to see you here. Delighted to make your acquaintance. We're by way of being colleagues, you know. At one time, I served as assistant prosecutor, but not for long, only two years. I came here to see the estate, and I've grown old here. In a word, I'm an old fogey. Glad to see you here, he continued, obviously controlling his voice so as not to speak loudly. He and his guests were on their way upstairs. I have no wife. She died. But here are my daughters. Let me introduce you. Then turning round, he shouted downstairs in a stentorian voice, Tell Ignat to have the sleigh ready by eight o'clock tomorrow. In the drawing room were his four daughters, young pretty girls, all in grey dresses and with their hair done in the same style, and their cousin, also young and attractive, with her children. Starchenko, who was already acquainted with them, at once began begging them to sing something, and two of the young ladies kept on declaring that they could not sing and had no music. Then the cousin sat down at the piano, and with quavering voices they sang a duet from the Queen of Spades. 
Again, Un Petit Verre de Clicquot was played, and the children danced about, stamping their feet in time. And Starchenko pranced about, too. Everybody laughed. Then the children said good night and went off to bed. The magistrate laughed, danced a quadrille, paid court to the ladies, and kept wondering whether it were not all a dream. The wretched room at the village headquarters, the pile of hay in the corner, the rustle of the cockroaches, the disgusting, poverty-stricken setting, the voices of the inquest witnesses, the wind, the blizzard, the danger of getting lost. And suddenly these magnificent bright rooms, the sound of the piano, the beautiful girls, the curly-headed children, the gay, happy laughter. Such a transformation seemed to him like what happens in a fairy tale, and it seemed incredible that such transformations were possible within a distance of two miles in the course of a single hour. And dismal thoughts prevented him from enjoying himself, and he kept thinking that all about him was not life, but scraps of life, fragments, that everything here was accidental, that one could draw no conclusion from it. And he even felt sorry for these girls, who were living and would die here in the wilds, in the provinces, far away from civilization where nothing is accidental, but everything is rational and governed by law, and where, for example, Every suicide is intelligible, and it is possible to explain its why and wherefore and its significance in the general scheme of things. It occurred to him that since the life about him here in the wilds was unintelligible to him, and since he did not see it, it meant that it was non-existent. At supper, the talk was of Lesnitsky. He left a wife and child, said Starchenko. I would forbid marriage to neurasthenics and people with a deranged nervous system. I would deprive them of the right and the capacity to have offspring. To bring neurasthenic children into the world is a crime. <sighs> the unfortunate young man, said von Taunitz, sighing gently and shaking his head. How much thinking you must do. How much suffering you must go through before you decide to take your own life. A young life. A misfortune like that can happen in any family. And that's terrible. It's hard to bear it. Intolerable. All the girls listened silently, with grave faces, looking at their father. On his part, Lejeune felt that he ought to say something. But he couldn't think of anything and merely observed, Yes, suicide is an undesirable phenomenon. He slept in a warm room, in a soft bed, covered with a blanket, under which was a fine, clean sheet, but for some reason did not feel comfortable. Perhaps it was because the doctor and von Taunitz were talking for a long time in the next room, and overhead, in the attic and in the chimney, 
The wind was roaring just as it did at the village headquarters, and howling as plaintively. Von Taunet's wife had died two years previously, and he had not yet reconciled himself to the fact. And no matter what he talked about, he always referred to his wife. And there was nothing about him to suggest the public prosecutor any more. Is it possible that I may get into such a state some day? thought Lejeune as he was falling asleep and as he listened through the wall to his host's subdued and, as it were, orphaned voice. The magistrate's sleep was restless. He was hot and uncomfortable. And he dreamed that he was not at Von Taunitz, not in the soft, clean bed, but still at the village headquarters, lying on the hay, and hearing the low voices of the witnesses, he imagined that Lesnitsky was nearby, fifteen paces away. In his dream, he recalled how the insurance agent, black-haired, pale, wearing high, dusty boots, had approached the bookkeeper's counter. This is our insurance agent. Then he dreamed that Lesnitsky and Loshadin, the policeman, were walking through the open country in the snow, side by side, supporting each other. The blizzard was eddying above them, and the wind was blowing at their backs, but they walked on, chanting, We go on, go on, go on. The old man looked like a magician in an opera, and indeed both of them looked as though they were performing in a theater. We go on, go on, go on. You are where it is warm and bright and cozy, but we go on in the cold, in the storm, through deep snow. We know nothing of rest. We know nothing of joy. We carry the whole burden of this life, of ours and yours. Ooh. We go on, go on, go on. Lejeune woke and sat up in bed. What a muddled bad dream. And why did he couple the policeman and the agent in his dream? What nonsense! And now, as Lejeune sat up in bed, clasping his head in his hands, his heart beating wildly, it seemed that indeed the lives of the policeman and the insurance agent had something in common. Didn't they go through life side by side, holding on to one another, some tie, invisible yet significant and essential, existed between the two of them, even between them and von Taunitz, and among all, all. In this life, even in these wilds, nothing is accidental. Everything is filled with one common idea. Everything has one soul, one aim. And to understand it, it is not enough to think, to reason. Perhaps one must also have the gift of insight into life, a gift which evidently is not vouchsafed to all. And the unhappy Narasthenic, as the doctor called him, who had broken down and killed himself, 
as well as the old peasant who spent his whole life trotting from one man to another every day, were accident, fragments of life, only for him who thought of his own life as accidental, but were parts of one marvelous and rational organism for one who regarded his own life as part of that common whole, and had a penetrating insight into that fact. So Lejeune thought, and it was a thought that he had long secretly harbored, and that only now unfolded fully and distinctly in his consciousness. He lay down and began to drop off, and suddenly they were again walking along together, enchanting. We go on, go on, go on. We take from life all that it holds of what is most bitter and burdensome, and we leave to you what is easy and joyous. And sitting at supper, you can discuss coldly and reasonably why we suffer and perish, and why we are not as healthy and contented as you. What they were chanting had occurred to him before, but this thought crouched somewhere in the background behind other thoughts, and flickered timidly like a distant light in misty weather. And he felt that this suicide, in the peasant's misery, lay on his conscience too. To be reconciled to the fact that these people, submitting to their fate, shouldered all that was darkest and most burdensome in life, how terrible that was. To be reconciled to this, and to wish for oneself a bright and active life among happy, contented people, and constantly to dream of such a life, that meant dreaming of new suicides of men, crushed by toil and care, or of weak, forgotten men, of whom people only talk sometimes at supper with vexation or sneers, but to whom no help is offered. And again, we go on, go on, go on, as though someone were knocking with a little hammer on his temples. He woke early in the morning with a headache, roused by a noise. In the next room, von Taunitz was saying to the doctor in a loud voice, you can't leave now. Look at what's doing outdoors. Don't argue, but just ask the coachman. He won't drive you in such weather if you pay him a million. But it's only two miles, the doctor was saying, in an imploring voice. But even if it were a quarter of a mile, if you can't, you can't. As soon as you drive out of the gates, it will be just hell. You will lose your way in a minute. I won't let you go, no matter what you say. By evening, it's bound to quiet down, said the peasant who was lighting the stove. In the next room, the doctor began talking of the severe climate that influences the Russian character, of the long winters that, restricting freedom of movement, interfere with the intellectual growth of the people, and Lejeune heard these pronouncements with vexation, looked out of the window at the drifts that had piled up against the fence, stared at the white dust that filled all visible space, at the trees that bent despairing, now to the right, 
now to the left, listened to the howling and the banging, and thought gloomily, Well, what moral can you draw from all this? It's a blizzard, and that's all there is to it. They lunched at noon, then wandered aimlessly about the house. They stood at the windows. And Lesnitsky is lying there, thought Lejeune, as he watched the snow eddies furiously circling above the drifts. Lesnitsky is lying there, and the inquest witnesses are waiting. They spoke of the weather, remarking that the snowstorm usually lasted two days and two nights, rarely longer. At six they dined, then they played cards, sang, danced. Finally they had supper. The day was over. They went to bed. In the small hours of the morning, everything quieted down. When they got up and looked out of the windows, the naked willows with their weakly drooping branches were standing quite motionless. The sky was overcast and the air was still, as though nature were now ashamed of its orgy, its mad nights, and the free rain it had given its passions. The horses, harnessed tandem, had been waiting at the steps since five o'clock in the morning. When it was fully light, the doctor and the magistrate put on their fur coats and felt boots, and taking leave of their host, went out. At the steps beside the coachman stood our policeman, Ilya Loshadin, hatless, with his old leather bag slung over his shoulder, covered with snow all over. His face was red and wet with perspiration. The footman who had gone out to help the guests into the sleigh and cover their legs looked at him severely and said, what are you standing here for, you old devil? Go chase yourself. Your honor, folks are uneasy, said Loshadin, a naive smile spreading over his face, and evidently glad to see at last the men he had been waiting for so long. Folks are very uneasy. The children are crying. They thought, your honor, as you had gone back to the town again. Show us the mercy of heaven, kind gentlemen. The doctor and the magistrate said nothing, got into the sleigh, and drove off to Cernia.